Hello and welcome to the Hindus in Focus podcast with a close look at the top news and views of the day worldwide. I'm Narayan Lakshman, associate editor at the Hindu and I'm very pleased to have as my guest for today Dr. Peter Hotez, the dean for the National School of Tropical Medicine and a professor at the departments of pediatrics and molecular virology and microbiology at the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. As the world continues to grapple with the debilitating human toll and economic consequences of the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, experts such as Dr. Hotez have been at the forefront of both research and treatment of the, for the infection. Along with and among healthcare workers, they are recognized as the frontline warriors in the battle against the coronavirus in the U.S., which has become the global epicenter of the pandemic in recent weeks. Dr. Hotez's perspective is also valuable for his multi-decade involvement in treating neglected tropical diseases, including in India, where he has worked extensively on better understanding the spread of and treatment options for elephantiasis, hookworm, leishmaniasis, and dengue. Dr. Hotez is well positioned to give us a deep insight into the current state of play with the battle against the coronavirus and what hope there is for the future. Welcome to this podcast, Dr. Hotez, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you, and thank you for giving attention to all these important issues. Fantastic. Could you please brief our readers and listeners, uh, firstly, on the current situation in the U.S., where President Donald Trump recently said that fatalities could reach a staggering 100,000. Why did the numbers spin out of control this way, and is there hope that the curve can be flattened? Uh, this began, of course, in central China, moved to Europe, and uh, the United States has uh, had a third of the world's cases. And New York City, sadly and tragically, has been one of the epicenters of that. And it, and it really took off because uh, the virus probably entered the United States earlier than we suspected. So the uh, national emergency wasn't declared until the middle of March. It's likely that the virus first entered into the U.S. and early February, uh, back backtracing it. And, and that means that transmission went on for about six weeks uh, before any efforts for social distancing were implemented. And we know from the models, especially the Harvard models, that that, that produces tragedy. That means if you allow transmission to go on for six weeks before you intervene, that makes the difference between having thousands of patients in your intensive care units and local hospitals versus having just a handful. And unfortunately, we're in the latter situation for some parts of the US, especially uh, the Northeast, uh, New York and Boston's been hit very hard. Some of the West Coast cities a little better uh, down here in Texas because uh, the virus didn't enter as, as quickly. And now we're of course seeing uh, this is a true pandemic. Uh, we, need, we can even talk about uh, later the situation that's going on in India. Tell us a little bit more uh, about the work that you do uh, as relating to COVID-19 in terms of research, uh, treatment, uh, what's your day like? Well, uh, one of the the, uh, centers that we've set up, uh, we moved to Texas about a decade ago because Texas, it turns out, is a great place to do uh, a a lot of uh, science. And we have a huge, actually, uh, number contingent of uh, Indian scientists, of course, in our in our in our university. I went to the Texas Medical Center where we have Baylor College of Medicine and Texas Children's Hospital. And there we established an institute, a center developing vaccines 
for some of the neglected diseases that we're talking about, like for hookworm and leishmaniasis and some of the others. But also about a decade ago, we had adopted a coronavirus vaccine program because there was a group uh, uh, at the New York Blood Center that had made some exciting discoveries uh, to develop an improved vaccine that would be both effective and safe. And then they partnered with us and we wound up uh, getting support from the U.S. National Institutes of Health to develop recombinant protein coronavirus vaccines. The problem was uh, for a decade, nobody cared much about coronaviruses or coronavirus vaccines. And then, of course, the world changed a few months ago. And now there's quite a bit of interest to see how we could repurpose some of our vaccines that are already manufactured towards COVID-19 and develop some new vaccines as well. So that's really interesting uh, what you said about vaccines, because I was going to ask you uh, about the whole range of feasible and scalable uh, treatment options. We have heard about the uh, antiviral, I think, called remdesivir. And of course, earlier there was talks about hydroxychloroquine, but again, there have been question marks about over that as well. Uh, so are, which of these are more like stopgap options? And is the vaccine really the sort of more permanent solution? Can you just explain this to us? Yeah, I think vaccines offer the greatest promise for protecting large populations at risk, like, like in India. The problem with vaccines, of course, is they're also the highest bar to achieve because, you know, you're with, with a vaccine, you're generally injecting healthy individuals and preventing them from getting sick. So you have to be absolutely pristine in not only showing that the vaccines work, but also your safety profile. And that's what takes time. In the meantime, I think there are some new promising treatments on the horizon. I'm, I'm very excited, for instance, about what's called convalescent uh, plasma, uh, which by and, and this is some it's a relatively low tech solution. It involves identifying individuals who've recovered from their uh, COVID-19, have antibodies. You almost like doing a blood transfusion. You remove their blood, give them back their red blood cells collect the plasma, which contains high levels of antibody, confirm that you can measure the antibody, and then you could give it back to patients who are sick, especially if you give it in the early stages of the illness, and it greatly reduces morbidity and mortality. It's a great treatment, and it, there are about 4,000 patients in the U.S. have now received it. The problem is it's, uh, it's hard to scale because it requires you having a, a base of patients with the illness. So they're now... Uh, version 2.0 efforts to see if we can, uh, we're not doing this ourselves, but companies are now doing this to make, or some of the academic labs are using this to make therapeutic monoclonal uh, antibodies based on this principle. And I think that's going to happen, or hyperimmune globulin. So I think those will likely be the first uh, treatments that that you'll probably see roll out uh, uh, across the world. And and uh, there's a lot of capacity for that in India as well, both for uh, vaccine development and uh, and uh, developing monoclonal antibodies. So this well, one of the good news parts of the story, I think, is you're going to see the Indian pharmaceutical uh, companies and especially the biologics manufacturers for monoclonal antibodies and vaccines really step up and make a major contribution to this problem. Okay, so uh, exactly to segue from there uh, to India, um, it, while the number of infection cases here continues to rise, uh, the government did move aggressively and early to impose a nationwide lockdown. Uh, could the fact that we aren't seeing the sort of fatality numbers that we have in the US, Italy, France, and Spain, 
be down to India facing a different coronavirus strain? No, I, I don't think it's going to turn out to be a coronavirus strain and uh, issue. You know, it's possible this is a new virus pathogen. But I think most likely it's because you did uh, implement some social distancing early on, like we did in Texas. Uh, so I think that you may have uh, mitigated maybe the worst aspects of this. But I would say we should not be complacent because I'm still worried for India. And the reason I'm worried for India is you're moving into the summer months. And we know sometimes that in uh, either uh, tropical countries or in, in the global south and the southern and in, uh, in, uh, in, in places like South Asia and Africa and Australia uh, and South America, sometimes for, in, for in influenza, for instance, things are inverted. So where in our case, influenza peaks January and through the spring, it then drops off during the June, July, August in the, su in the Southern hemisphere and in some places like India, it's, it's the opposite. So the worst may yet be to come and, uh, for India. I don't, I don't want to give apocalyptic predictions, but I think you cannot be complacent. I think you have to assume the potential that things could get much worse as you head towards uh, July and August. And we're already seeing that happening in Brazil now. Brazil's getting hit very hard especially in some of their crowded urban areas in Fortaleza and Belém and uh, Manaus. And so I'm particularly worried about your crowded urban areas, especially in the low-income neighborhoods uh, uh, where people are forced to live in very crowded conditions. So I'm worried about, you know, some of the crowded urban areas of Mumbai and the other Indian cities. So I'm holding my breath because I, I, I do think there's a possibility you still could get hit very hard. Okay, it's interesting you should say that because uh, so far as weather-related uh, or seasonality questions are concerned, uh, people who are saying um, in certain forums that it's the other way, that the heat actually is not good for virus, viral transmission and it could actually slow the transmission down, uh, but you're saying it could actually be the other way? No, it's not so much that. I, I agree with the pre your premise that the the sunlight and hot weather do do may have an effect on reducing transmission. But for instance, we know that that's not the only factor. So for instance, with influenza, it peaks in the Northern hemisphere uh, in the winter, it peaks in the, uh, in the summer months, June, July, August in the, in the Southern hemisphere, but then in the tropics, it's there all year round. So it's not purely the effect of sunlight and, and warm temperatures. There seem to be other factors that are in play. For instance, density crowding is still a really important uh, issue uh, that that may even override uh, warm tropical weather. So, uh, and and that may explain some of that. So, I worry about some of the densely populated areas as you move into June, July, August uh, in India. Again, this is a new virus. We've never been through a full year of the virus. Any predictions uh, or uh, or suggestions are speculative, including mine. But uh, I think if I were, you know, looking at this from the standpoint of the Indian Ministry of Health, I would say yes. I think we we can't be cannot be complacent. We are concerned in the in the next few months what might happen in our crowded urban areas. And my guess is that I'm sure they're doing just that. Uh, that you know that there there there's some outstanding people both in the Indian universities and, and the Ministry of Health. So I'm, I'm guessing those kinds of discussions are underway.
Absolutely. Um, Dr. Cortez, you specialize not only in virology, but also in pediatrics. And uh, there have been some reports relating to impact on children. Uh, most recently, uh, cases in New York uh, worryingly talking about uh, COVID-19 positive children succumbing to symptoms that resemble Kawasaki disease. Uh, is this uh, something that uh, is could could spread more widely? Is this a matter for concern? Yes, uh, it caught us a bit off guard because in China, we did not hear much about pediatric syndromes. Our, our understanding was that kids were mostly doing handling this virus pretty well, not getting very sick, with the exception of uh, there was about 10% of infants who were getting very sick with this virus in China, uh, young infants. But old, you know, older kids, adolescents did pretty well. But then it was first came out of the UK, and then we saw it in New York, uh, a syndrome that looks like what's called a vasculitis, an inflammation of the blood vessels uh, linked, linked to this virus, maybe a little bit later on in, in the course of the illness. And we've and it's still not a common uh, syndrome, this Kawasaki's-like syndrome. There have been about 100 cases, pediatric cases in New York, where the epidemic's been the worst. So it's still... It ha so every children's hospital in New York has cases right now, uh, but it, it's by no means a common syndrome, but it's one we're going to have to uh, look out for. And I think it's related to the fact that the virus that causes COVID-19, the SARS-2 coronavirus, uh, binds like the previous SARS-1 to a certain receptor in the tissues called the ACE2 receptor. It stands for angiotensin converting enzyme, and uh, it it's found on the cells of the blood vessels of the heart and the lungs, and that's what we're seeing happen. The, the blood vessels, the heart and the lungs get affected. And we're also seeing, uh, unfortunately, a lot of cases in the U.S. among adults of clotting defects, which we're trying to understand. So we're seeing lots of different types of thromboses, uh, meaning uh, clotting of the blood uh, leading to blockage. So this is causing stroke. It's causing what are called pulmonary emboli, and it may be associated with coronary artery thrombosis, giving people heart attacks. So that's kind of the new, a new ominous twist that we really hadn't seen before, understood was widely occurring in China, but now we're certainly seeing it in the U.S., and we'll have to look very closely in terms of what happens in India. The other thing I'm concerned about is a certain comorbid conditions are predisposing people to severe illness. An example is diabetes and hypertension. And now that diabetes and hypertension are taking off uh, in India, uh, and there's a lot of work, for instance, by colleagues like Srinath Reddy in, in, in uh, the Public Health Institute in India, looking at rates of cardiovascular disease and diabetes, which are quite high now in India, I, I'm concerned that this is gonna be an important risk factor for COVID-19 as well. So you have elements in India that give me pause for concern, the crowded urban areas, especially low-income areas, uh, the high rates of diabetes and cardiovascular disease. I think these are all red flags, as we say, that to look out for as you move into, uh, the, into your uh, summer months uh, and to, to watch out for. Okay, and on, on the India question, if we could uh, take a step back, it, would you say that a broad lesson of the COVID-19 pandemic is uh, that countries such as India uh, should be better prepared maybe for future events of this sort? In terms of creating sufficient capacity of 
the, the required equipment, hospital beds, uh, ICU beds, medical specialists. Uh, do you think countries like India, which have been ravaged by indeed other diseases uh, such as TB, malaria, and all the NTDs that you specialize in, the neglect, uh, neglected tro tropical diseases, uh, for decades, do you think that India will learn this lesson and act accordingly? Well, it's not unique to India, of course. Every nation on the planet has to learn some lessons for this. Of course, I keep on predicting with each pandemic that things will get better and it never does. So I predicted the world would change after SARS-1 in 2003 and then after uh, H1N1 in 2009 and then after, and the list goes on, after MERS in 2012 and then Ebola in 2014 and Zika in 2016 and now this. But the uh, the learning less the lessons learned are are slowly learned. Yes, I think I think things will uh, change after this particular uh, pandemic. I think India has an enormous amount to offer. Uh, I continually to be impressed by the quality of of some of the universities in India. I'm impressed with its capacity for innovation. Uh, especially around uh, vaccines. So India, the, the way I see this playing out is India is going to be an important player in this and not, and not just passive. I mean, India has capacity for greatness uh, in the area of biotechnology, especially vaccines. So I'm, I'm a very enthusiastic supporter of, of India and we're always looking for uh, partnering uh, opportunities. Uh, I, I think they're an example of of what a country can do, even despite its levels of poverty in terms of overachieving, in terms of uh, uh, having an impact for pandemic preparedness. In fact, I've been, uh, I have a new book coming out at the end of the year called uh, uh, preventing the next pandemic, vaccine diplomacy in an age of anti-science, and I talk quite a bit about India uh, because of my experiences with all of their successes in the past. Fantastic. Okay, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Hotez. Um, that was Dr. Peter Hotez, um, Dean for the National School of Tropical Medicine and Professor of the Departments of Pediatrics and Molecular Vi Virology and Microbiology at the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, I hope uh, we can touch base again with you in the future. Uh, thanks so much and uh, uh, good luck uh, as we proceed in the coming weeks and look forward to talking to you again and, and updating you. Fantastic. And to all our readers and listeners for the Hindus In Focus podcast, uh, tune in again for much more on the coronavirus pandemic as well as other, other topics of interest. Uh, we'll be on our website, www.thehindu.com. Thank you. Thank you.